0: Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I'm the managing editor of Providence. And today we have a special Christmas edition of the podcast. And I'm going to be speaking with Walter Russell Mead. He is a professor of foreign affairs and humanities at Bard College, a distinguished scholar in the American strategy and statecraft for the Hudson Institute. And he is the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. So first off, Walter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great
1: to be here. You're putting out a terrific magazine.
0: Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all your contributions on that. And uh, I should, I said earlier that this is a Christmas edition, but in some ways it's an Advent edition because we are putting this out before December 25th. But Walter, you for the past several years, have done a Yule blog and Providence has been hosting it since I believe 2017. So first off, Walter, what is the Yule blog and why did you write it?
1: Well, a Yule blog is, is a set of meditations around the 12 days of Christmas. And I started it, I guess, because I was I, I When I teach undergraduates and deal with young people in all kinds of professional settings, I'm aware that, that somehow or other, my generation, and I guess now the one after me, dropped the ball on giving new generations a basic religious education. And far and you know, forget the question of belief. Simply knowing what Christianity, or for that matter, even Christmas, is about, is something that a lot of young people just don't know. So I thought, well, uh, you know, why not try to do something about it? And the Yule blog is what I came up with.
0: So I know that a lot of listeners may not realize that Christmas doesn't end on December twenty fifth, but it begins. And uh, I think it's important to kind of remember that. I know we've had a couple of people who've wondered, why are we posting Christmas stuff into January? And I know for me personally, I realized that Christmas continued when I roomed with several Anglicans. you Are are you Anglican? Is that right? Yeah, I'm an Anglican.
1: And okay. so, you know, from a very, well, but you don't need to be an Anglican. You just need to to visit shopping malls to know about 12 days of Christmas. I mean, you know, that's one of the most famous, if also one of the most perplexing, Christmas carols. Uh, if Christmas ends on December 25th, what is your true love doing giving you 11 maids, ladies dancing on the 11th day of Christmas? There are 12 days of Christmas.
0: Right. And it's also, it also gives me a very good excuse to keep the Christmas tree up until January.
1: It's amazing how much you can procrastinate once you've fully internalized this important truth about Christmas.
0: So in the blog posts or in the... Series, the Yule Blog, you write that for Christians, Christmas is the hinge of the world's fate, the turning point of life. So, why is Christmas the hinge and why isn't something like Easter the hinge?
1: It's a good question. Uh, I think because the incarnation, you know, when, when God becomes a human being uh, and joins our life, Easter, at least, you know, the way I think of it, follows from that. And yes, I mean, you, you know, there are a lot of moments you could say where the hinge of history. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think, would argue that you know every moment can be viewed as the hinge of history, um, and uh, and they've all and you can make a good claim for all of them. So you could certainly make a claim for for Easter. But I think God joining the human race, not as a conqueror, not as a king, not you know as some kind of supernatural spooky being. But as a little baby in a manger uh, during the reign of Caesar Augustus is, in historic terms, um, that divides history—well, for that matter, A.D. and B.C. are are based on the birth of Christ, not on Easter. So literally, it's the hinge, I suppose.
0: I know for each year you kind of update the blog post, and I believe a couple years ago the uh, first post, I think you call it the 13 post of Christmas. Uh, you wrote about how uh, you know, America is moving into this post Christian phase and that um, we've had a taste of what politics would look like in this environment. And so, in that situation, why do you think non Christian Americans should understand the religious point of Christmas?
1: Well, for the same reason that uh, you should try to understand your neighbors even when they are different from you, and especially when they are different from you. Uh, we are in a diverse society. Christians need to understand non-Christians. Non-Christians need to understand Christians. But also, if you want to understand American history, if you want to understand the Constitution, if you want to understand the sort of intellectual and um, cultural traditions that that you know plant the United States in a Western tradition, and then plant that Western tradition in the world tradition. You can't do it if you don't understand Christianity. You don't have to be a Christian to do that, but you have to understand it. And I should say, by the way, that doesn't mean you're going to necessarily celebrate that tradition. But even if you want to condemn American history on the grounds of slavery, racism, or you know capitalism exploitation, you need to understand the framework in which this vile thing was created if your criticisms are really going to be solid and have effect. So I, I just say it's, a, it's an essential part of education, regardless of what you want to do with that education. Now, I happen to think there's another reason for, for, for wanting to understand it, which is that I think Christianity is true. And I think the Christian sto- Christmas story provides an extraordinary vision Uh, of the great Christian truths in a way that's very accessible. You know, a kid can understand it, uh, participating in a nativity play in church, and uh, uh, a great scholar who spent their whole life studying theology can learn new things by thinking about that Christmas story.
0: One of the things I appreciate about the Yule blog is you uh, seem to be kind of gearing it toward Non Christians so that they can understand and I think you know it's always helpful to kind of go back through and read some of the stories and we don't have a you know I I know you're a busy man I don't want to take up a lot of your time but so we can't do a deep dive into each of all of these total of 14 posts there but I wanted to bring up a couple of points that you make first you emphasize the importance of Mary mother of Jesus So this becomes kind of very controversial and contentious for Protestants, but what do you want Protestants to know about Mary?
1: Well, I don't, you know, I mean, I don't know that Mary should be that controversial among Protestants, and certainly, I mean, some Marian doctrine that's taught in the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, is is controversial. Uh, But the idea that Mary is an important figure and that Christians who want to understand and follow Jesus need to understand his mother and to think about his mother, that that doesn't strike me as uh, a particularly controversial idea in and of itself. But I think you can add to that a couple of things. Number one is that theologically, um, the... Uh, going back a very long way, the sort of universal church looking and, you know, speaking in those ecumenical councils in the early years, uh, drew the, you know, made the conclusion that, that Mary needs to be regarded as the mother of God. Uh, and that's, that's not about Mary. You know, that's not, oh, my goodness, how great is Mary? It's who is Jesus? And what does it mean that Jesus is fully man and fully God and how is Jesus as one person? How does he have this divine and human nature in him, to him? As they worked that through, they, they realized that, that you have to accept Mary as the mother of all of Jesus. Uh, that makes her the mother of God. What does that mean for, for God? And what does that mean for us? So that's, that's part of it. Part of it, I think, is is we um, you know we have that commandment there, honor your father and mother, uh, and as Jesus' siblings by adoption, his mother and father are ours also. We know how Jesus honored his father through his ministry and his work and his acceptance of a terrible death. Might be worth thinking about what does what what would it mean for Jesus to honor his mother, the mother of God? I, uh, I'm not suggesting, as I say in the, in the post, that um, uh, Southern Baptists need to start saying rosaries. But I am, th- I am saying that our, knowledge, our, our understanding of Jesus and his work becomes deeper when we think about Mary. The third area that I would, I would point to is that I think the Bible actually teaches us much more about Mary and gives Mary a bigger role than uh, than many of us sometimes uh, think if we kind of if we aren't looking and and the key to the, the, two, the key to this for me really is the Magnificat, which is the hymn that it's in the Gospel of Luke that Mary uh, utters when she is Reflecting on God's choice to make her to ask her to be the um, uh, mother of His Son, and if you, you read that as a very very powerful hymn and you can or you know piece of poetry, and you can hear in it themes that resonate through Jesus' ministry, um, you know scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, has put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. There's so You can see, in a sense, the biblical portrait of Jesus is also a portrait that shows his mother's influence. There's another piece of this to me, Mark, that, that I think is important, um, and that is one of the most distinctive things about the portrait of Jesus in the Bible, something that marks him off, as far as I'm aware, from every other Historical figure in any civilization or religious tradition, particularly at that time, is there's not a single place in the Bible where Jesus condescends to a woman or treats a woman as, as, as somehow a lesser being. Um, he has theological discussions with women. He takes them seriously as... As independent people. He responds to them on a one-on-one personal way. He listens to them. He doesn't make one little remark ever, well, you know, she's only a woman, what can you expect? Or women aren't really supposed to be doing this or that. That's actually quite extraordinary. It's actually one of the arguments one could make for why Jesus is different from all other uh, teachers and, and you know prophets who've ever Appeared. I don't think it's stretching it very far to think about the woman who raised him having that kind of an impact. And then the fact that Christianity's founder was the least, quote, sexist person in the historical record, in many ways, certainly among men, has had a profound and continues to have a profound effect on the lives of billions of people in Western civilization and in Christian communities around the world has historically inflected, not enough, but had an impact on the way the church has treated women and the way women have been able to flourish in the church. Um, If you read Ronald Stark's histories, it had something to do, the, the, the special place that women had in Christianity had a lot to do with Christianity's early success in the Roman Empire, the establishment of Christianity as a great religion. So the Virgin Mary is a force of nature in the Bible. It's also, I think, worth, and I'm sorry if I'm going on too long about this, Mark, but it's, uh, I, I think it's a really important point, set of points, is that um, People sometimes take the idea that you know that Christians believe that that the mother of Jesus was a virgin before he was born as somehow being this kind of anti sex thing. Sex is too dirty for God to be mixed up in it in some way. That is certainly not obviously the the, the impression one gets from reading the Old Testament. I think it's better it's better understood that the virginity of Mary is that here is a young girl who takes a consequential decision, at least up there with Abraham's decision, to have faith in God. And she does it not for the sake of a man or in connection with a man. God approaches her as a person, uh, as a free actor. And she responds. you know, if, if Jesus had had a human father, I, think I say this in the blog, the Bible story would be about like how the young prince won the love of, the, of Mary and so was able to father the savior of the world. She would drop right out of that story or become a kind of an object. That God chose to do it this way is a, a, an extraordinary declaration about God's view of women. So I think when we think, of, when, when we think about the Virgin Mary, we are thinking about a, you know her influence on her son, uh, her influence on our culture, and the message that God's use of the Virgin Mary and relationship with the Virgin Mary through the Bible has for all of us. Now, I don't know why Protestants can't get with that.
0: In another post, you write about how the Christmas story suggests that we can somehow try to be loyal to members of our nations, our families, and our tribes, and to reach out to the broader human community um, of which we are a part of. So what does the story of Jesus and Christmas teach us about our nations and tribes?
1: It's always interesting, you know, when you think about that story. You, you realize that you know, Jesus was not nobody from nowhere. Or he was, you know, he was born into, here he is, the the Son of God, the creator of the universe, is born into a particular family and into a particular small nation. And we can see in Jesus' life how that the the culture of that nation, obviously the religion of that nation, the history of that nation the literature of that nation shaped his mind and his heart. And we see he has a kind of an instinctive love for members of, quote, his tribe. And he's at home in his tribe. And then you think, well, wait a minute, he's he's a universal god. What what is this? But we see in his encounters with others, with Samaritans, with the Syrophoenician women, um, with other foreigners and outsiders that he comes across uh, in, in, in the course of his ministry, Roman centurions and others, he leaps over these bounds. These ba- you know, the, His identity forms him and grounds him and gives him a context, uh, but it, it doesn't limit his sympathy or his solidarity. And so he can, he can honor the virtue of a Samaritan or he can appreciate the quick wit and the repartee of a Syrophoenician woman. He can honor the faith of a Roman. Here, I think we see all of us, you know, we we, we all need to be people, you know, there's biological studies and brain studies and so on that that show that we're sort of made this way to feel... Part it's important to us to feel part of a group, uh, to be in a family, to be in a, in a culture, to be in a country, whatever it may be. Uh, yet, clearly also, we need to be accountable to universal values. We can't, uh, maybe it's, you know, I'm not going to get into a political dispute here. I can see, you know, it's not a completely unreasonable position, though it can be a counterproductive position for a political leader to say America first in my policy but that's very different from America only so you as human beings we have to be a good citizen a, a loyal member of our community but at the same time ultimately we are part of a global species a global community a global family and we can't interpret our parochial identity so narrowly that it destroys our ability to do what Jesus does and reach out and have genuine human relations. And of course, Jesus ends by dying for humanity, the vast majority of which are not Jewish and had nothing to do with his history and community.
0: You know, one of the things, you know, when I was reading that last year, I was reminded of uh, what Tim Keller wrote in Prodigal Prophet about how our nations, where we come from, have such an important, you know, influence on who we are as a person. And uh, we don't, when we become Christians, we don't abandon where we come from. C.S. Lewis also wrote something about it. So in the story, he's talking about Jonah, and he uh, he says the problem with Jonah wasn't that he... You know, was a nationalist like he was, but his problem was he didn't put God first within that relationship. And when he describes himself, he describes himself first as a Hebrew, and then he's like, oh yeah, and then there's this God thing. And so, anyway, so yeah, so I thought you know what you kind of write about with uh, Jesus and his Jewish identity is important, and I think there's a lot for us to learn about it today, and uh, kind of that prioritization, the right ordering of loves, I guess you could put it.
1: Well, I think too. Remember that. Jesus was given the opportunity to, quote, make Israel great again uh, by the devil when he offered to give him control of all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus had to reject that vision in order to be able to fulfill his mission and, as we Christians believe, the mission of the Jewish people. He had to transcend that narrow loyalty in order to fulfill that narrow loyalty now you can you can go way too far with this and sort of you know well since we're supposed to transcend our, our nationality i'm going to i'm going to think it's a bad thing to be a patriot or to love my country and that anybody who loves their country doesn't really love god i don't think that's what the bible is getting at here but it does say you're right that all of our loves all of our loves and passions are under the judgment of a sovereign and universal God, and it's our responsibility you know we we must put God first, or we will pervert the other thing the other loves that we have
0: and I know you update the blog post every year and i'm kind of curious to know you know considering the pandemic like what the christmas season uh, what meaning it might have you know for me personally i've The most memorable sermon I've heard about Christmas emphasized how the holiday occurs at the darkest time of the year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. And then, depending on where one lives, the days start getting longer and longer in early January after Epiphany through Easter. And so the pastor was bringing up the point was that Jesus can enter the world into our darkest moments and that life improves. And now, when I look at the news and I see how... We're over 300,000 dead with the uh, pandemic. Um, we've had a couple of days or so where more than 3,000 have died. You know, people are having to uh, stay home and not visit family that they would normally go see because they want to protect the health of their loved ones, or they're somehow limiting their life um, for the health of others. And, and yet we still have this vaccine. And so we have like this promise of a brighter future. And the idea that, you know, sometime next year things will be better, but we're still in this dark moment. And so I kind of see a comparison in Christmas there where you have this dark moment, but still the promise of a future. And I'm just kind of curious like if you had any thoughts on what any special lessons for Christmas this year.
1: Well, certainly this is going to be the first Christmas in my life where I'm not going to be with a large gathering of family. And that is a You know, that is really uh, not the happiest moment. I have wonderful siblings and nieces and nephews, and at this point, great nieces and great nephews. And so much of the joy of the holiday is about seeing them. Uh, Well, we'll have family Zoom and so on, but it's really not the same. I guess it does remind me of the thing that we always say, but I, I think we don't often truly believe or experience that the heart of the Christmas season is is none of that. The heart of the Christmas season is the birth of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to see and what we're going to live through in this year is Christmas stripped down to the basics, and that may be a a way to in, you know to get in touch as never before with uh with this eruption of meaning into a dark history and dark lives
0: walter thank you so much for joining us on the provcast for a special advent slash christmas version and i really appreciate your yule blog and everything you do for us
1: well thank you mark and you guys are doing great work and i look forward to finding ways to work with you in the new year and wishing you and yours and all of our listeners the happiest of holidays and most joyous of times with friends and families, and especially a clearer vision of the baby in the manger this year.